This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Hello, and welcome to Marketing Trends. This is producer Ben Wilson. Today's episode of Marketing Trends features an interview with Brian Rothenberg, partner at Defy.vc. Previously, Brian served as the GM and vice president of growth at Eventbrite, co-head of marketing at TaskRabbit, and as the co-founder and vice president of product and growth at SkillSlate. On this episode, Brian talks all about how growth needs to evolve at every stage of a startup, including how to find product market fit, scaling, and creating durable growth. Enjoy. Marketing Trends is created by the team at Mission.org and sponsored by Salesforce Pardot, B2B marketing automation on the world's number one CRM. Are you ready to take your B2B marketing to new heights? With Pardot, marketers can find and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast or click the link in the show notes. Here is your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org, and we are in downtown San Francisco. So is this the official HQ, or do you have multiple HQs? We have multiple HQs. We're in San Francisco and Woodside. All right. Brian, what's going on? Ian, good to see you, as always. Yeah, I can't. It has been a year. The last episode we did together was, I think, January, about what's coming for 2019, and 2019 is, gosh, it's uh, three quarters of the way over, so... It, it's hard to believe it's Labor Day already. Wow. It, it is hard to believe. And so today we're going to be talking about from zero to IPO, how growth needs to evolve at every startup stage. You wrote an awesome article in the first round review that I particularly loved. And I said, hey, let's let's talk about this on the podcast. But before we go into that, so t- tell us the news about uh, your new role at uh, Defy Partners. Yeah. So after uh, a little more than six years at Eventbrite, I helped to build the growth function there from scratch um, through the company's IPO this past fall. I thought deeply about what I wanted to do next. And um, as you know, I've been an early stage investor doing angel stuff and proud investor in the mission here. But I really felt that I was passionate about helping a lot of early stage entrepreneurs and wanted to spend time at those early stages and help them figure out their business and, and how to scale. And so I felt like the best way to do that was to become an investor and, and joined venture capital. So was very, very fortunate to meet my two co-founders, Neil and Trey. Um, they're both founders and company creators themselves, but have spent a lot of time at great firms like General Catalyst and Kleiner Perkins. They left to start their own fund, a smaller fund focused on the Series A, and uh, linked up with them a few months ago. And I'm now getting my feet wet as a, as a VC, helping to find and coach great entrepreneurs. And so what has it been like? Are you Do you have a certain... S- stage or type of company that you're working with or focus or anything like that? Yeah. So we have a $400 million under two funds and we invest more than 90% of our capital at the series A. So companies that have signs of product market fit, they're onto something. Typically the the entrepreneur has raised a little bit of capital, but not a huge round. And and we try to come in and write a a moderate sized check, join the boards, be very active participants and helpful at that critical early juncture of shifting from product market fit or trying to find the last bit of it into scale stage. So that's really how we approach the market. And are you 
looking at B2B companies, B2C companies, everything in between? We look across sectors. So we're more stage focused, a little bit less sector focused. Um, me personally, I, of course, love marketplace businesses, of course. Uh, love consumer, and also love um, some enterprise companies, typically ones that are a little bit more consumerized, bottoms up SaaS, much like an Eventbrite, uh, for example. We should do an episode in the future, uh, not today, but in the future, just about bottom up versus top down enterprise companies. Cause I think that would be, that would be super fun to look at the difference. I mean, it's just from all the interviews that we've done on marketing trends, like we've seen so many marketers that are pulling tips and tricks from B2C into B2B or, or B2B into B2C and like hyper personalization and ABM and those sort of things. Like anywho, I would, it would be great. I totally agree. And we increasingly see the convergence of the two where it's not really an either or, but how do you draw the best from both sides to help your company grow? But it, it's fun to look at the two approaches and how they differ and how they're similar. I mean, you look at, you know, for example, and obviously Salesforce is the amazing sponsor of this show and we love Pardot, but you look at Salesforce Essentials, for example, which, you know, we're a Salesforce Essentials customer. It was a self-serve product, right? Yeah. I mean, like that's something that, you know, when people think about, you know, Salesforce, they don't think necessarily, you know, a self-serve off the shelf CRM for small businesses, right? So it's just interesting to see those large enterprise companies figuring out things like that. And it actually, you know, I, it would be, it's an interesting piece on, uh, on phase three of your f- three phases here for zero to IPO. So I guess we'll, we'll save that till we get to phase three. So first, why did you write this post to begin with? So Uh, I'm very fortunate in that I've worked at companies and helped to found companies from literally inception through that seed raise, series A, and into more growth rounds um, at Eventbrite. And I realized that growth looks really different across each of those stages. And I think, you know, I had been advising a bunch of entrepreneurs and really one issue that I was seeing is a lot of people were trying to apply the late stage sort of growth approach that mm-hmm. Facebook popularized around really fast testing, a lot of micro optimizations, uh, but they would apply that too early. And it led to, you know, subpar outcomes. And also similarly, growth as a function has only been around for maybe seven or eight years in total, mm-hmm. I would say, and has often been sort of misconstrued or misunderstood and wanted to just shed some light into my experiences from startup, uh, again, all the way through IPO and how it changes across all of those paths and and what growth really is to me. That's really interesting. And it's a great insight. And we'll, we'll get into some of the particular insights there. But you're totally right that people you know, would read the blog post or read the, you know, the rapid testing or the whatever, whatever thing it is that might be a later stage thing of like, you don't realize how much money that X company is burning because they already have product market fit. Like they're burning, you know, $5 to make back $1, but the lifetime value of all of those customers is $20. They know that they're losing money for the long term uh, or winning money in the long term by losing in the short term. If you do that with your, you know, with your precious runway, you might run out. Yeah, it's almost like digging faster to dig your own grave. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so let's go through the phases. So there's there's three phases that uh, that you talk about in the article. Uh, the first one is finding product market fit and gaining traction. The second one is scaling. And the third one is making larger leaps and bigger bets. You know, I want to start off with with the first phase here, finding product market fit. 
and gaining traction. So from a growth standpoint, I feel like if there's founders listening to this or CMOs of early stage companies, this is like one of those, you know, how do you know you're in it? It's like you kind of only really know if you are. But I think most people don't necessarily know if they are. How would you categorize from a growth perspective where the heck you are in this kind of phase? Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the YC founders, uh, Paul Graham said startups exist to grow, right? That's their purpose. But I think oftentimes you have to crawl or walk before you can run. And so that doesn't mean not moving fast in terms of talking to your customers, building the product that they need, solving their core pain points there, you have to move as fast as you can. But I often see companies, especially at that, that critical, very early stage pre-product market fit, thinking about goals in terms of milestones. Like we're at a thousand users. How do we get to a hundred thousand users? And of course you want to be moving in that direction, but uh, there are varying paths to get there and um, overly spending to your point earlier, right? Spending too much before you have that product market fit um, can be highly detrimental, you know, building out the wrong skill set. So hiring, you know, paid acquisition people mm -hmm. too early before you've got the product dialed in, that's a mistake. So Again, I think understanding where you are in the life cycle, understanding are you delivering enough core product value to your customers such that they would be extremely disappointed if the service went away? And are they starting to evangelize and share your service? Are you seeing signs of, of virality and word of mouth happening? Those are absolutely critical before, before putting the foot to the gas, so to speak, to really push on the growth levers. Yeah, and I think that people, oftentimes we have this, the lean startup approach for product iteration and people just use the same thing for growth. But the problem is that it's really, really easy to blow through money when you're doing growth. You know, when your company is getting customer feedback from the product standpoint, if you're testing too many things, I think there's potentially an area where you're not actually getting data points that are valuable. It's like, yeah, yeah. you're, you're A-B testing the product in four ways, for example, but you're also growth testing four different, you know, types of marketing copy, for example. You're now, that's not a good hypothesis. Or am I wrong? I don't know. Maybe it is. Well, I definitely believe in leading with hypotheses and, and trying to figure out what are your biggest roadblocks and how are you going to, uh, and the hypotheses for why and how do you test your way around them. But to your point around like, running four different ad copy on a certain ad. Okay, that makes sense for optimization when, you, when you're at a certain scale where that matters. But early on, uh, like the classic example is A-B testing a button on your homepage, whether it should be red, blue, or green. Honestly, when you're at the earliest stage, that just doesn't matter. It matters at the Facebook scale where you have billions of users every day, but it won't matter. Like even, if, even if you had enough data to say that a blue button is better than green, which, by the way, should take months to figure out just yeah. based on sort of sample sizes. It's just not that impactful. So again, you have to, in a world of a startup, you have constrained resources. You can only invest in so many places. And that micro-optimization is not the place to start when you're at such an early stage. I love that point that it takes months to figure that out. It's something that, that I've definitely seen. I'm curious how many early stage marketers focus over focus on optimization rather than getting you know the same message out there um it's just something that i see all the time a company that i 
advised for a period of time. They just raised a series A and they were trying to roll out their growth team uh, and a cross-functional growth team. So marketing, product, operations, et cetera. And, and I very much ag agree with that approach of taking this cross-functional approach of what are our levers? How do we think holistically and make sure we're all rowing in the right direction? But the path they were heading down when I engaged was around instrumenting their full funnel to make sure all the data uh, was tracked appropriately, which is great. But then running these micro experiments in the funnel of, you know, is this wording on this form field more impactful than this other wording? And they were at a scale where it was literally hundreds of new customers per month instead of thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, which you would expect to be impactful again by, by testing that. So we refocused on, no, actually, like, let's talk about what are the biggest barriers to growth? What are the biggest risks that we see? Why is that? So let's talk to customers and figure those things out. And then what are the bigger, more impactful tests that we can run um, and, and changes that we can make that will have an actual bottom line business impact versus this, this teeny field optimization in the onboarding flow? But we all want to rewrite the copy. So <laughs> that's just you. You're the you're the creative. Oh man. God. <laughs> uh, we do write way too we overproduce our copy for sure. So what are some of those things? What were what are some of those like the larger things that you should be focusing on at this stage rather than, you know, tweaking copy and buttons? You know, ultimately, growth happens when you get enough customers to the aha moment of value where they understand what your service does and how it helps them in their life. And then you get users to experience that as frequently as possible or as frequently as makes sense in the context of your product. And so talking to customers as they're onboarding, <laughs> right? Like, again, go back to talk to customers. It, I think a lot of startups skew towards, oh, I need to take this quantitative data-driven approach to growth. But at the early stage, again, it's understand you talk to five customers about their onboarding experience or you watch them do it. And three of those people run into the same question around, I just don't understand how this works or how it helps me. Well, you probably should focus on helping them understand how this works and how this helps them. It's funny. I mean, that's the ultimate, you might not realize it, but you might be spending 10 hours a month looking at button optimization and that 10 hours you, you could have set, you know, however many, 30 calls with customers and got like real anecdotal things that you could implement. And I guarantee you, nobody, this is the other thing where you go back to like what the, you know, you are solving a problem for someone's life. Like their problem is not around the button. Like that might be a lever that, you know, or that might be a, a piece later on down the line that like helps people down that path, but that's not the impact that you're trying to solve. And it's definitely not the thing that makes you money. How much do you think that backing out your business and being really clear on how you make money from this thing is a part of your early kind of uh, product market fit growth plan? I, I think it's probably pretty core to understanding should this business be built? Is it a problem that's felt by enough people and acute enough that somebody's willing to pay for it in time? And then that that audience is large enough for it to be a material business. And it, again, it depends if it's a venture scale business or something that you're bootstrapping can be more lifestyle um, business, but it's a factor. I would say it's a little bit less about, it's less of a factor in the early product market fit stage and more, it becomes a bigger factor as you're scaling and piling more money into, you know, your growth levers where you really have to understand the economics of the business and where are you spending profitably versus unprofitably and, and how do you scale those profitable levers? So then we'll get into that in a second. I want to go back to the milestones piece. 
So you say in the article about map out the journey and hypotheses, not just milestones. You know, you see a lot of advice, startup advice, like everybody likes to have a goal. You know, it's good to have a, it's good to have a competitor. It's good to have a milestone. It's good to have things that people are rowing towards, you know, the big, hot, audacious, hairy goal or whatever it's called. But so like, when is keeping, keeping it real? When is keeping milestones real go wrong? Well, we talked about a lot of lean startup principles. And back when I started my last company, gosh, this is now nine years ago, <laughs> dating myself a little bit. Um, it was when Eric Reese's lean startup book came to be. And it happened sort of midway through my startup that I was founding. And I think initially we and our board, our investors were very focused on what were the key metrics last month and how are they trending this month? And what are you forecasting for future months. And we were at a stage where we didn't feel like we had product market fit. Mm -hmm. And so the epiphany was like, wow, we're, we're running this business kind of like we have product market fit, but we don't. And we're reading the lean startup methodology and understanding like you should be hypothesis driven and you're seeking to learn to get to product market fit so that you can scale. And so we actually reframed one of our board meetings and changed the whole structure of the deck from what metrics did we accomplish to what did we test in the last month? What were our hypotheses going in? What did we learn? So did we prove or disprove any of those hypotheses? How will we apply those learnings to further developing the product such that we try to find product market fit? And what are our hypotheses and questions for the future month? So basically, what are we going to learn ahead? And it was like this um, epiphany, like light from the sky, and everyone around the table sort of clicked. And one of our board members, Finn Barnes at First Round Capital, he wrote a blog post about it later, just how it shifted his thinking and shifted all of ours and was so much more impactful in the end. And so I would say like every board meeting after that was infinitely more productive than those first few because it shifted from what did we accomplish to what did we learn? I absolutely love that. Man, that's great. That makes me think of the idea of, you know, the, the person who wins the negotiation is always the most prepared. Well, it's the same sort of thing as like the person who's going to win the market knows the most about their customers. So if you're framing this phase one as your team wins are around how much you know about the market or how much you know about your customers, that those are the things you're going towards, towards like, you know, what is the proprietary information? What are the secrets that we know that nobody else knows so that then we can continue to refine how to scale that in phase two? I love that. That's great. Gosh, have you seen any other founders who schedule? I mean, I've never seen a, a deck like that. I'd say it's not that common, uh, but something that I definitely try to work with the founders that I work with and coaching them on, you know, of course we want to see output and impact and metrics, but that comes over time. And so de-risking the business, understanding your customers better, that's really the place to focus. And so I've worked with my founders that I work with to shift the conversation a little bit more towards what we just talked about. I love that, man. But see, this is one of those tangible things from like a growth perspective. Like it's more important to do a net promoter score survey with your customers that you have right now than to try to get more customers that you know nothing about, right? If, if like those are your two decision points. Yeah, you need them to, you need those customers, especially the early ones to be evangelizing for you again. Mm -hmm. and, and this relates to a key point that I think is often lost. I think a lot of early stage founders and founders, frankly, through all stages, focus on growth as acquisition 
almost exclusively. Totally. When retention and customer engagement and customer evangelism is actually the absolute table stakes foundation for future growth. So if people aren't being retained, if people aren't evangelizing your service, um, like for instance, the consulting firm Bain popularized the net promoter score. And what they found through their research is there's no long-term industry or category leader that doesn't also have the leading NPS score yeah, for their vertical. I saw that, that we, we missed it. I, I think maybe you might've shared it and I, and I saw it on Twitter or something. No, I saw that. What a freaking insight. Oh my goodness. Isn't that astonishing? Yeah. But it's not a coincidence, right? It's those customers are stickier. They're retained better and they are effectively your outsourced sales channel. That was so we were talking about this off before we got on here because we're we focus at mission on our on our NPS for our customers and NPS for our for our guests and then uh and your NPS score is okay, right? Yeah, it's doing all right. Uh, <laughs> uh it's pretty good. And uh and then we're we're rolling out NPS for our listeners, uh, as those are our three groups that we care about. What's so funny though is I immediately pinged our team. And I was like, I was like, go read this article. We need to like triple down on our, our marketing strategy for this year, for the rest of 2019. It's, it's literally, I have it up on my computer. It's in my, uh, my Q4 marketing strategy is make sure that we have a ton of refinement around MPS. Like that's a marketing function. That's a growth function. And it's one of those, one of those classic mistakes that you make is that those man hours or, or, you know, employee hours should be used on something different than that. Because you know, we could have done other stuff. We could have wrote more blog posts or done whatever it is or fixed the copy on the website for the 800th time or fixed the website. Oh, I was just going to add on, on the NPS side, NPS and just basic customer sur- uh, surveying can be so powerful across all of your marketing. So looking at how your promoters of your service, so the people who score you nine or 10, how they describe your service, you can use some of those insights around how they're describing your service. What are the consistent messages they're using and put that on your own service. It basically talk back to your best customers about what your service does. And the second is looking at the detractors, people who aren't having a good time and finding the common patterns there, working to fix those. And when you do, then future customers are more likely to rate you as a promoter and feed that virtuous cycle that we just described. Let's get into phase two, which is scaling. I want to start with the idea that now you should have a more refined idea of who your customers are. You should be already a product market fit. And now you're trying to figure out how to grow profitably. Is that a fair assessment? For the most part, it is. Right. Not, you don't always have to be pure profitable scaling at this point. Sometimes it makes sense to double down and scale unprofitably for a period of time to the point where you can ultimately see that profitable scale, yeah. like yeah. Uber being a key example. But 99%, I agree. But yeah, so, and I guess I should caveat that with like, in order to figure out how to scale profitably, you are going to run a bunch of experiments in which those are all unprofitable scaling mechanisms, right? Yes. So, so really scalable channels and tactics and or processes, so structures within your company such that you can get to a much larger scale, 10x, 100x scale, and have a path to have it be profitable throughout that phase and or a path to profitability. And this is, I, I would say this is probably the time when there actually is a marketing team potentially being formed around this, right? Uh, either marketing or sales and marketing, or again, this cross-functional approach of product-driven growth, marketing-driven growth, and other functions as well. But you could say 
generally speaking, what what, what series? If the if this someone was raising, what series would this be? Uh, sometimes it's a series B ish company. Okay. Sometimes C. Um, occasionally, you'll see signals of product market fit as series A, but I would say it's more post series B. Okay, so you're talking about generally speaking, you have a head of marketing. I'd say like Series B is like head of marketing. Yeah, with Series like A B. Yeah, somewhere somewhere in there with a team of whatever we'll say four to ten, somewhere in there maybe. Yeah, two two to ten. Two sure. to ten. We'll yeah. say two to ten. <laughs> okay, so and this is a position. I mean, we've had a lot of guests on the show who are at this exact phase of their company, and some of these companies have raised a lot of money, but a lot of that is on product, on engineering, uh, not necessarily on growth. Which is, as we've kind of said, that could be a good thing. So how's the mentality different? Uh, what are the goals? How are those different? What are the growth levers in this phase? I think a lot of the similar principles apply, right, around um, being hypothesis-driven. Um, but now you're getting to a scale where you have more data and you can sort of shift into being a lot more quantitatively rigorous. And some of those optimizations that may not have made sense um, before, you're typically now entering a scale where it starts to make sense. And so... Again, not necessarily talking about should the button be blue or green, but understanding how many people are flowing through your acquisition path, your onboarding path, where are they getting tripped up? How can you A-B test uh, which onboarding paths make people more successful versus not? Understanding better, frankly, how the business grows and getting to a finer refinement there in terms of what are the key levers, where do we have a competitive advantage over our competition in our business model, and how do we start testing? Can we lean into those channels and, and really drive them forward? There's some really good insights on this on this phase. I love the turn your sketches into reality, uh, and you have an image uh, in the article of all of the loops that feed different things from onboarding to word of mouth, network distribution, you know, awareness, all of that stuff, which our listeners can check out in the show notes. Why was this a challenge to turn sketches into reality? Why was it tough to get people on the same page on this? I think if you ask 10 people in a company, why does this business grow and what are the key levers for it to grow? you'll probably get seven to 10 different answers. Yep. <laughs> and when everyone's operating from, I'll say like not the same shared reality of how the business grows, then people do what they think is best for the business. And again, it's like you're on a, a I don't know what it's even called, a rowing team. You're on a row, uh, rowboat and everyone's kind of rowing slightly in the same direction, but not totally in sync. And where it's most powerful is when you get everyone pulling in the exact same direction. And so what I've done in the past and I've seen work well is, uh, looking at sort of a quantitative model for how how does the business grow? Is it, um, you know, what are your levers at the top of funnel? What are your levers mid funnel? What are levers bottom of funnel? And oftentimes it's not just a funnel, but more of a like their sideway paths yeah. for the businesses and the, and the product, et cetera. And so we went through an exercise at Eventbrite where we whiteboarded out with a group of, of other talented people let's map out how the business grows. And it sounds so basic and rudimentary, um, but we turned those sketches into a visual that we could share with others at the company and, and seek alignment. It helped to make investment decisions a lot more clear because you could you could visually see this and, and then quantifiably measure the impacts. Like say, if we moved this onboarding metric from A to B, here's how it flows through the rest of the business and the impact to our bottom line. 
that's a little bit of a later stage approach, but, but one that was highly successful for us. I love that. And it reminds me of the, uh, when we had Jennifer Johnson, the CMO at Tenable talking about when they got their team together to talk about category creation, right? It's the same sort of thing where if you asked 10 people, what is the market? How are we going to position ourselves? And I know it's beyond positioning, but, uh, how do people talk about us? How do we talk about ourselves? You know, especially in the executive team, like there's a lot of different answers. And I think it's so important to get people visually on the same page with these sort of things. Did you ever see Chad's flywheel? Did you ever show this? I'll, no, I'll, I want, I, now I'm yeah, really I'll, intrigued. Yeah, I'll have to share it with you after. But uh, yeah, our CEO, Chad, at the beginning of 2018, like drew, like hand drew a flywheel, took a photo of it, of like all the different like levels of how our media channels flow in and out with each other, you know, and how essentially you can, you know, build a company that values the listeners and the guests and the customers together at the same time. And uh, it was super helpful to have that as a guidepost that, you know, I go back and like, like read his update, like probably like once a quarter and it grounds me who's in charge of marketing for the company and like what I should be focusing on. And it's, I think that the visual, uh, and I'm a pretty visual person, but I think that it really just helps to say, like, I understand because the CEO did it. I know exactly how we can nest our marketing priorities, you know, within that, you know, maybe I should have been the one to drive, but, but I think that I, I love that idea that it, grounds the entire team and, and gets them on the same page. Especially in a fast growing company where communication tends to break down as everyone's scaling and new people are joining, it can help people both understand, but also then oftentimes speak the same language. Are we using the same vernacular? Are we um, thinking about things in the same way? And, you know, I mean, did you all like print those out and put them on your desks or something? I mean, it seems like, you know, that's one of those things that every single meeting you could bring in and just say like, Hey, let's make a decision. Does this, where does this fit on this chart? Show me where it fits. Show me where it adds value here. Or what is the experiment that we're running based off of this framework? We did not print uh, those out, but that's a great idea. We probably should have. Okay. So you said stack up each loops impact. What does that mean? And I guess what are loops? Like, let's, yeah. let's, let's take a step back. Um, so a couple of friends of mine, I th- I'm trying to think, I think it was Casey Winters, maybe Brian Balfour, a few other folks. Marketing and growth had been talked about uh, for a very long time in terms of funnels and typically a single funnel. And really what they had seen in a lot of companies is that a straight up and down funnel is not accurate way to describe how a business grows. And this concept of growth loops is much more accurate, I would say, and powerful. And so it's this concept that you may have a funnel sort of at the top is how people enter the product, but then there are many other different ways for them to interact with the product, whether that be sharing the product through virality, whether it be people re-engaging and coming back in through SEO. And, and this concept of loops is where can you invest that fuels the whole business? It's almost like the wiring of an engine, so to speak, um, and how the engine works and trying to, to visually map that. Using an example, like creating content. So if you create a blog or and or a content hub on your site, the loop is you create the content, it gets distributed, crawled by search engines, shared on social, et cetera. Those refer new people back to your content that might learn about your brand for the first time. You may capture some information about those people and remarket to them by sending them more content in the future. Um, and that's a powerful loop. You have this content that goes out there, it's evergreen, gets new people, it re-engages existing people. So anyways, that's just one example. 
were there certain things that you saw where you would have a number of loops being tested and there was one that was the highest opportunity one and you would kind of like look at that and be, or look at some of them and be like, Hey, do we need to kill these two or focus on these, you know, like resources are limited, you know, whether it's whatever channel you want to say, Hey, maybe this, this particular loop is not really, you know, worth it. Or do you evaluate each loop as like a business function, like a, as a revenue generation function, or how do you kind of view them? We tried to look at the loops and, and or the funnels across one another to help prioritize where do we think we should focus, given that we know we have finite resources to drive the biggest impact. And we would try to quantify again, like in this given loop, if we can move this metric from A to B, how big is the impact to the bottom line? And we did shift from loop to loop over time. But, you know, when I first helped to form the growth team at Eventbrite in uh, early 2013, we had a hypothesis around one of the loops that became actually most powerful for the business. It was mm-hmm. listed in the company's S1 filing as one of the key growth levers, but it was this viral loop whereby people would come and start out on Eventbrite by buying a ticket. Say like a friend of yours is going to an event. They say, hey, come to this event with me. And they share their the link to the Eventbrite ticketing page to go buy it. Um, that buyer, then they buy their ticket and they have their first interaction with the platform. And then in the future, they may be organizing an event where they need to collect payments and sell tickets. And they think back to, oh yeah, didn't Sonia send me that link to that site where you can buy tickets and, and oh, and you can sell tickets too. And we did a lot of work to help increase the understanding that Eventbrite is not only to purchase tickets, you can use the platform to host and organize and sell your own tickets as well. And we did that through product experimentation. We did that through marketing levers, marketing channels. And over the course of my time there, we moved that metric up, that conversion of people starting as ticket buyer, converting into event creator or host on the platform. And it was this really powerful, nearly zero cost customer acquisition mechanism for the business. We, I remember there were so many different like meetups and different things that were going on in San Francisco at the time, you know, back in 2014, 2015. And I remember like constantly getting invited to different event rights. And when I ran my event, uh, where we had 380 people and, you know, generated X amount of dollars for Eventbrite as well. Like we used, that's why we used it for sure. I mean, that definitely worked for me because I was like, oh, I've already bought. It's a super easy process to buy, to purchase a ticket on here. Therefore, for my guests that come, I'm going to want to do that. That's exactly how people would describe it. They would say, hey, I had a really easy experience using this. I want to give my attendees the same easy experience. Okay. So let's get into phase three, making larger leaps and bigger bets. You know, this is this is the the phase where I think you're talking about these larger bets that potentially return, you know, almost a venture-like bet where if I make a bet on something, this could return the entire revenue, the ROI. What's the what's the ROI measurement? Um, what is it like the target you want to get like seven X oh, return? Your, your hurdle rate? Yeah, 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 yeah. Target rate of return. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. But this is one of the things where you now are trying to make bet big, win big, right? I'm curious, like, what are some of the things from a mentality standpoint that's different? How do you convince your CEO that you should be Mm -hmm. doing these things? And how do you try to aim small, miss small, uh, even though you're, you're potentially doing the exact opposite? Yeah. A friend of mine, Pete Flint, uh, the founder of Trulia, 
said this, and I think it really encapsulated it. The art of what he does now as a venture investor and what he did as a, as a founder operator is knowing when to innovate and when to optimize. And that's a key thing. And I think at any given time, a business is on an S curve, right? You're starting off slow and then you start to ramp and you hit this inflection point and you're growing. But typically when you're operating the same type of company in a fixed or finite market, eventually growth slows down and that, that you hit the top of the S curve. So the concept here is how do you find the next S to sort of layer in and help you move up an even steeper ramp and or extend the length before you start to plateau at that top of the S? And it's tough. Like you have, again, you're still operating a business. You have finite amount of resources and knowing how much to invest in which bets can be a tough one. This is when people buy billboards. Am I <laughs> that's, wrong? That's, uh, that might be part of it. They might take a huge swing on TV or other out of yeah. home. Even beyond that, strategic decisions such as, do we expand internationally? At what rate do we expand internationally? We are operating in X, Y, and Z categories today. Do we add new categories? Is there a new product or a, or a really big new feature bet that we need to make that's going to cost a lot of money and a lot of time, but you need to make the bet to go all in to see if it'll work? And should you take that swing or not? This is the period where I would say that you had a head of marketing it better be a CEO or CMO by now. And there might be some awkward conversations that need to happen. But I know from a lot of the CMOs that I've talked to that this is the, this is the period where they have the, uh, the weird conversation of like, it needs to be a C-level executive, even though that probably should have happened uh, a long time ago. I'm curious, like from a positioning to the CEO standpoint, how do you evaluate those things? Like, how do you evaluate or how do you help them evaluate these types of big bets and say, you know, hey, I'm going to deploy a $500,000 bet or a, or a million dollar bet when you know that those decision points are, you know, they have to sign off on this. This is no mm -hmm. longer, you know, at your level that you can sign off. Yeah, I think some of those strategic, really strategic company conversations around international expansion, for example, that needs to be a C-suite yeah. sort of discussion and debate and, and brainstorm. I think from a more squarely marketing perspective, if we're going to do TV, it needs to be a million dollar minimum investment to get a signal. And I think they're highlighting, well, what could this become? Like, say this does work. Here's what it opens up. Like we were tapped out in our digital channels. We're seeing marginal cost of acquisition go up. We're seeing the lifetime values of those incremental customers go down, which is common as you saturate spend in a given channel. This could theoretically unlock a new channel that can drive the next wave of, of paid growth for us. Is that million dollar test worth it or not? Let's talk about the pros and cons. So I think it's a, it's a two-way dialogue. I, I think I've seen marketing leaders fail when they are so dogmatic about like, we have to do this, this has to be it. But maybe presenting, here are the pros and cons, having a, an intellectual conversation around that specific bet, and then presenting a few other alternatives. So, okay, if we don't do that, here are some other options that we might take and talk about the pros and cons of those. I, I think that's much better received than the uh, my way or the highway. Yeah, then the, we need a billboard, we need a TV. And I think where marketers get in trouble on this stuff too is that they've done it a certain way in the past. And it's like, hey, you know, we ran a really successful out-of-home campaign at my previous company. Like, I think it's time to start to do out-of-home now rather than like giving your your board or your CRO or whoever it is, like, here's the suite of options. You know, I, and it harkens back to one of the things that, that Shandar, the CMO of Coupa, talked about, which is the idea that like, if you're going to sales and saying, hey, we're going to help you do one of three things, you know, sell more, sell faster, sell bigger, 
and this campaign is going to help one, two, or all three of these things, then it'll get received better than if it's like, hey, this is just, you know, a crazy thing that marketing wants to do. Yeah, exactly. I, I think this also goes back to our conversation we had a few minutes ago around like, what does a CMO do? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so again, it's like coaching and helping the CEO or whoever the ultimate decision maker is on what is the benefit, what are the costs, et cetera. Brian, this has been awesome. I, I want to leave the, uh, leave the listeners with this idea that I really love, which is startups need to innovate on product and distribution. It can't be one or the other. I just love the way that you put that. And that's really what growth is all about. I mean, growth is the function of, you know, the cross-functional piece of marketing that innovates distribution. Uh, any final thoughts? Uh, thanks so much for having me. This is always fun and go, go the mission. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, man. Take care. Thanks, Ian. Thanks for listening to this episode of Marketing Trends. Marketing Trends is created by the team at Mission.org and sponsored by Salesforce Pardot. World-class marketers use Pardot to generate and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI at every stage of the sales cycle. Empower your marketing team to become revenue-generating superheroes and let Pardot's data analysis keep an eye on the bottom line. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast or click on the link in the show notes. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.